It's my privilege this morning to introduce our speaker for the day, uh, Peter Gaiman. He serves as an associate pastor or professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. He's a graduate of both the Master's University and the Master's Seminary, where he completed his MDiv, his THM, and his PhD degrees, specializing in Old Testament studies. He currently serves at the Shepherd's Church, where he oversees the young adult ministry. He's married to Kinsley, and they have three sons and a daughter. The youngest one is three months, is that right? He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society's authored regular journal articles, and he also has a podcast called The Bible Sojourner. Many of you, how many of you have heard that? Ah, good number. So uh, if you haven't, uh, look it up. It's a, it's a, it's a great um, podcast for you to listen to. So without any further ado, I'd like to give, a, give uh, Peter a welcome here this morning. Well, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm not sure, I didn't turn around and see how many of you uh, listen to the Bible Sojourner, but if there was at least one of you, I'm just surprised that you would actually come, having listened to, but actually, I was explaining this to multiple people, is that if you're having trouble sleeping at night, it's actually helpful to just like, oh, okay, this is really boring, and then you go to sleep. But... Uh, no, I, I, I obviously enjoy doing it, but uh, I just am thrilled that other people would uh, find it helpful. Uh, I want to give a little bit of background about myself just because the introduction's helpful and I'm uh, thankful for that. But also, I just recognize that sometimes it's hard to get motivated to listen to somebody if you don't know a lot about them. So I want to explain just a, a few things. Currently, I reside in Raleigh, North Carolina, just outside of there in a suburb. And before that, I was in Los Angeles. So why in the world am I in the middle of Nebraska? That's the question. Let me explain to you. I wasn't always a city slicker. I came from northern Minnesota, like, you know, throw a baseball to Canada, Minnesota. Okay, so uh, the difference there, though, I don't know. I, I feel like I'll have to explain some things because I have some illustrations that might be, be helpful. But I should explain to you what a forest is, I think. <laughs> No? I mean, it's, that's one thing that is noticeably absent from this area of Nebraska. Uh, and in Minnesota, we, it, it is a lot of forestry there in northern Minnesota. And so I grew up in the woods, like exploring the woods. And that's basically one of the things I wanted to do with my life was just live off the land in the woods, you know. So it, it, th there were some aspects of that existence that I, that I really, really liked. Uh, and as I was thinking for... Uh, planning for the future and what God would have for me, he directed clearly uh, along the pathway of seminary. And one of the things that I'm most excited about uh, with regard to what the Lord has allowed me to do is to speak on issues like this, uh, where you know the tagline of the conference is basically like three essential characteristics or defining characteristics of, of what a godly man must have. And Let's, let's just address the elephant in the room right away, okay? All right. What makes me qualified to speak on these things? 
All right, so we're going to talk about humility, for, ex for example. You don't know me from Adam. Some of you might know my voice on a podcast, but am I a humble person? I'll just put this to rest right away. I'm not a humble person, okay? Very arrogant, very proud, okay? So, but that's, but that's the difference is at a world conference, if you went to a conference on, you know, how to be an entrepreneur or a CEO or something like that, you would expect somebody who has it nailed down or locked down to be guiding you, right? You'd say, okay, I want that guy. He, he's made his millions. He, he's going to tell me exactly how to do that. Well, listen, uh, which one of us can say, and you could put any famous pastor up here, any famous scholar uh, up in front of you, which one of us can say we have achieved humility? As soon as somebody says that, they've immediately shown that that's not true in their life. So it's kind of like, as we're processing this, and you're thinking, okay, so is he qualified to speak on these issues? I mean, um, he, he looks kind of, I mean, I, ha I do have some gray hair, but it's just not entirely visible yet. And, oh, my, uh, my iPad is screaming at me. It's saying, please try again. I was like, okay, I think that's a message from the Lord. Try again. You know, it's just like, um, I think we understand that uh, humility is something that we should all be striving for. I'm going to be talking about love and discipline as well. Those are all things that we should be striving for. And I'm not here to tell you, you know, these are, these are five steps that I've tried in my life. And so as I have, I have, as I have clearly demonstrated this is the way to pursue this. And then if you don't follow my example, you are, you are a fool. I won't say that. I can't say that. But what I can say is that these things are clearly important in Scripture. And by their very importance, we have to talk about them. In other words, th this is kind of why we're talking about this, okay? This is, this is the, the secret, the secret to why we, we, we're doing this is because a lot of times you get in this endless feedback loop where people are saying, well, we, well, I can't talk about this issue because I don't have it nailed down. And so somebody else better talk about it. But then I, I went, well, my own personal testimony is that I went almost 20 years of my life before I heard someone talk about self-discipline from the Bible. 20 years. And... I look back on that time and I say, why didn't, anybody talk, why didn't anybody talk about that? Why didn't anybody emphasize that that's found all over Scripture? The same thing with humility. I remember hearing the first sermon on humility. I remember thinking, this seems to be revolutionary. This seems to be at the core of everything that Jesus taught. Why wasn't it emphasized more? And then I, as I started to research it more, because I started to see it everywhere, and I was saying, I've got to find everything there is to know about this. As I started to research these things, what I realized is that a lot of people are scared to talk about these things. Because as soon as you say, hey, we need to be humble, well, you just painted a bullseye on your back. You're not humble. What are you talking about? You know, that kind of thing. And so I think at the outset, we can all agree that... Humility, discipline, and love are essential according to Scripture, and we'll talk more about this, don't worry. And at the end of the day, I'm not here to tell you I have it down, and I would even, I think I'm speaking for all of you when I say that you don't have it down, but I think, Lord willing, if the Lord would allow us this, this privilege, as we study it today, there'll, there'll be some light bulbs that go on as we look at 
Scripture's clear teaching on these issues, and we realize this is very important. So would you pray with me uh, as we, again, bring our time to the Lord in prayer? Lord, this is very important, and I am so desirous that my brothers here would, would see these things. I'm so desirous that I would see these things in a fresh way, and I pray that you would use your word to affect our hearts through your spirit, and that we would not just learn, but that we would be excited and passionate about what we're learning. And Lord, please change our hearts. To this end we pray, amen. Christian character. Maybe we could even define it further. And the character of a godly man, because that's what we're, we're all here for, right? If One of the huge benefits of doing things like this is we get to gather together as men and talk about, you know, what is it that makes a man? You know, and I insert Tim Allen here. Oh, oh, oh. You know, it's just like, this is the, this is the home improvement uh, section. Now, this is, some of you are more aware of this than others, but there's, there's actually a cultural push right now uh, for, inside the Christian existence, for Christian masculinity. I don't know if you've, you've sensed that. All the younger generations have sensed that. It's all over social media. Um, there, is the, there is this desire of, you know, you need, to, you need to be a man. You need to be masculine. You need to be a warrior. You need to be able to fight. You need to be able to work hard. And I'm not saying those things are bad. But there is a surprising and frightening absence of scriptural emphasis on what Jesus himself emphasized as the defining characteristics of what make a godly man. And to just kind of set, set the tone, let's go to Luke 22. We're going to be going lots of different places today, but this is kind of a, a import, an important starting point for our discussion about what we ought to be pursuing and in Luke 22, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he gives his disciples an inst- instruction uh, during the Last Supper, beginning in verse 24. We're going to be in Luke 22, starting in verse 24. So what we read is that a dispute arose also among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here you go. During the Last Supper, you have Jesus uh, and the disciples gathered around, and the disciples start arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And he said to them, this is verse 25 of chapter 22, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather... Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And so Jesus himself (coughs) points out the key difference between how those in the church and those in the world are to think about true greatness. And I think even more powerfully 
this, this passage really comes to life when, when you realize that as the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest, you have Jesus going around in John 13 washing their feet, right? That's, that's the picture, is that in, in a despicable, despicable display of pride and arrogance, the disciples are arguing about which one's the greatest, and here you have the greatest, the creator God, washing feet. And so in the Christian circles... There's a paradox of sorts where if you want true greatness, if you want to be great, and I think that's a good thing, by the way, to want greatness. I think that's a really good thing. But you have to define it correctly. And true greatness is found in the element of service. And service is obviously going to come through humility. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Most people would acknowledge that humility is very important. I think, I think if we were to survey, I think most of you would say, okay, yeah, humility, boom, super important because that's the right Christian answer. We know that. But I think not just in the culture at large, but even in, in the churches, we really don't, we don't actually display that in our lives. I mean, it's easy to see in the culture. I, I uh, you know, I remember back in the day, uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy athletics and sports, and, and I used to love watching football. I don't have time to do it as much anymore, but, but um, you know, I, you would see people who, who act in a display of just arrogance, and, and they, they walk around with a strut in their step, and in the past, I feel like people would say, oh, yeah, he, he's just being arrogant, he's being proud, you know, stuff like that. But now it's almost like they, they lift that up and applaud that. Oh, you need someone with, uh, w- remember swagger used to be a bad thing? I don't know if you remember that, but swagger used to be a negative description. Now, oh, he's got swagger. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. He's got swagger. You know, he, he, he struts himself up. He, he shows that he is confident in, in what he has. See, that, that, that's how the world views this now, is that you need a certain self-confidence. You need to have a strut in your step. That's what the world feeds us uh, through television, through you know, on-the-job training, all these different things. It's no surprise that we see that then in the church. We have people walk through the doors, even in our very own lives. We are tempted to be self-sufficient. We are tempted to say, look what I am able to do. In fact, oh man, I, uh, I don't encourage this, but I was, I was scrolling Twitter the other day. Anything that starts with that is already going to be bad, okay? But I was scrolling Twitter the other day trying to, trying to uh, see what was, what was being said out there. I ran across a pastor, and this, this pastor had just gone through chemotherapy for, for cancer, and, and his discussion went something like this. I just finished my second book while going through chemotherapy. Can I just say how proud I am of myself? This is a pastor. He says in his biography, like, pastor of such and such a church, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just remember thinking to myself, wow. This is a pastor. He's supposed to set the paradigm. He's supposed to set the standard for what it looks like to be humble. And yet here he is saying, look at what I'm able to do. Look at all these things that that I have accomplished. It really kind of reminded me of 
Daniel 4, where King Nebuchadnezzar said, look at this mighty Babylon that I have built with the power of my hand. Look at what I have accomplished. And I love how it says, while the words were still in his mouth, God said to him, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you will be driven from among men. And the purpose of that is so that you may know that the Lord gives the kingdom to who he will. There is a need for humility in our lives. And I don't want to belabor this because I think you understand scripturally that this is true, but I just want to survey a few of, of the biblical aspects of, of how important this is. Just think about how Jesus starts his ministry, okay? Jesus starts his ministry, we're told in Matthew, by preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And how does he start the Sermon on the Mount? With the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's, there's a humility at the very outset of what Jesus calls those who would be kingdom citizens to follow. And that's to empty themselves, to recognize that they are, they are paupers when it comes to spirituality, that they are poor, that they have nothing to offer, and that they are beggars. When was the last time we thought of ourselves as beggars? Uh, I know myself included here, that I'm tempted many ways to rely on myself. But even as Jesus opens that great sermon, he sets the standard and saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their destitution. And I would even go so far as to say, and if you, if you want to turn to Matthew 18, this is, this is a, a crucial point that we'll make from, from this text. I would go so far as to say that without humility, you can never enter the kingdom of God. Or to perhaps say it this way, without humility, you can never be saved. Now, I'm not saying that there's a works-based salvation, okay? And we'll talk about that more as we go through the day, because some of the things that I'm going to say, you'll... you'll think in your head, wow, he's really laying it on thick about the, the need to do good works and the need to, to pursue these aspects of Christianity. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the Bible does that. And it's not because I'm saying that we earn our salvation. But what I am saying is that true Christians look this way. And specifically, if you think in your pride and your arrogance that you have sufficiency and you don't need saving you won't be saved. Only it, it's only somebody who recognizes that they need salvation that they then will be saved. I actually remember hearing a story one time about a, a gentleman who was sitting in a pastor's office being counseled and they were, they were having struggles in the marriage and the pastor just asked the man, he, he realized that something was wrong, so he asked the man, um, have you been saved? And the man replied, saved from what? It's like, what? <laughs> it's, he didn't even realize that he needed saving. He thought his life was good. And the reality is that until we recognize our, our brokenness and our need for a Savior, we can't be. And so Jesus actually makes that point in Matthew 18. <clears throat> Again, surprise, surprise, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. <laughs> oh, man. And there's, there's a lesson to be learned there where if the disciples can, after three years with the God incarnate, still be arguing about who's the greatest, maybe we don't grow as fast as we think we do. 
All right, Matthew 18, he says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' point here is very profound. He calls, you know, you have this argument about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus, tell us. We really want to know so we don't have to, you know, engage in these discussions. And Jesus calls this little child to him and says, look at this child. This is who you are. This is who you need to be. Don't confuse anything. This is, this is exactly who you need to be. And one of the things that we need to understand is that children... And I'm in a perfect situation of life to recognize this. In fact, uh, we, for our family devotions, uh, I like doing this passage periodically to just ask my kids about this and, and say, you know, why does Jesus say that we need to be like little kids? And, you know, they get it now, but as we were first starting, they're like, I don't know. Like, why does he say that? And, I'm like, and so I, I asked them, I'd say, are you able to make your own dinner? No. <laughs> Are you able to get dressed by yourself? Okay, half of the kids can now get dressed by themselves. Uh, but, you know, are you able to get, get dressed by yourself? No. Are you able to, are you able to do your own laundry? No. Are, what can you do by yourself? I don't know. It's just like, they, they, they're just like, I don't think, it's, it starts to dawn on them. They're like, wow, we rely on our parents for everything. It's like, come on. And for some reason, we forget that as, as believers, that this is the mindset that, that we need in coming to Christ, and we never grow out of it. See, we can't come to Christ saying, Lord, I need your help to get over that hump so that I can get to heaven. I, I'm most, mostly good, but, you know, if you could just help me over that last, that last 87.29%, that would be great. Because I need, I need the A. I need to be able to get into heaven, and I know I need you for the rest of the way. That's not at all what it is. The point is that you are like a little child. You're incapable of contributing, contributing anything positive to this relationship. And so at the very outset of the Christian relationship, we are to take this mindset of, listen, God's not getting a good deal saving you. He's not, he's not investing in for the future. He's not saying, oh, I really need that person on my team. I'm going to invest. Yeah, this is, this is, watch this, angels. He's going to pay off in the long term. Watch this. You know, that's not how it works. You are, you're, you're like the dilapidated Jeep in the junkyard that has, you know, no motor, no nothing. You know, and, and God says, all right, I'm, I'm going to just completely renovate this. And, you know, the Jeep is offering nothing, right? This is, this is the aspect of what, is our starting point in the Christian life, but we never grow out of it. You always have to have this mindset, and that would just be a very pertinent application as we think through just the, the need for humility is if you ever catch yourself thinking, you know, I am sufficient, or I, I do such a good job at this, or, or any of those things. That's, that's not how we are to think about it. There are so many other good texts that we could think about. Uh, I will just give you one more. Obviously, Philippians 2 is a big one. Um, we won't go there, but that's the example of Christ himself. 
uh, in considering others more important than yourselves, and then Christ in his incarnation, uh, coming from being the glorious God to taking on human form, taking the form of a servant, the text says. And so we could look to that example and say, yes, humility is so central, even in Christ's example for us. But I'll just point out one more text in Ephesians 4, uh, when after Paul gives the the Ephesians 1 through 3, he really sets the standard of of our identity in Christ and our relationship with him and and how Christ has saved us. And then the big takeaway of that in in chapter 4, Ephesians 4, he sets, sets the expectation or the application of what that should mean in our lives. And so he says, I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so exactly what would it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called? Does that mean being a mighty warrior, achieving great and mighty things, speaking to thousands? No, what does it look like? It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He doesn't leave it up to your imagination what it looks like to walk worthy of that calling. He tells us. He says, with all humility and gentleness. Maybe at this point, it might be be worthwhile to maybe even define humility. I think that that, maybe just a simple definition would would go a long ways. I'm not sure if I came up with this definition or if I've heard it, heard it from someone else, uh, but it just, for whatever reason, this has stuck with me and, and it really is, is a helpful way to think about things. Humility isn't thinking of yourself more lowly. That's how we often view it, but that's, that's not exactly true. Humility isn't viewing yourself as more lowly. It's viewing yourself rightly. That's what humility is. Humility is simply just having an accurate view of yourself. It's pretty simple overall. And it's recognizing that those key components which we were talking about, your complete uh, depravity and dependence on the Lord, your need, your destitution, you are a beggar before, before the Lord, and recognizing that he alone is the one through whom good things come. In fact, as James says, all good things come from the Father of lights. This, this is what the scriptures clearly teach us. Now, that, that's all part of kind of introduction to why this is so important. Uh, I think coming in, you would have said humility is really important. And hopefully, after all that, you're still saying humility is really important. Now I want to give, I think, 11 characteristics of the humble Christian, okay? And this is really important to me. This made a, this made a huge impact in my life. Basically, a long time ago, as I was trying to study these things, I picked up a book uh, by Thomas Watson, a famous Puritan, and he, he wrote a book called The Godly Man's Picture. And in it, he had a section on humility, and I read it, and I, I remember thinking to myself, Wow, this is, this, is, this is crushing. This crushes my soul in a good way. You know, you love to be crushed. And, and I read those and, and I adapted them from, you know, old Puritan English to more modern, uh, modern ways of speaking. And so there are 11 characteristics of the humble Christian. And we're going to go fast just because I think it's really helpful to, to have a kind of a barometer or a test 
for what it would look like to be humble. And so we're going to go as fast as we can uh, through these. So number one, these these are 11 characteristics of the humble Christian. Number one, a humble Christian is emptied of all proud thoughts of himself. Okay, so a humble Christian is emptied of all proud thoughts of himself. The humble Christian doesn't say, oh, I'm really good at this, or I'm really good at that, or, you know, I've seen this so many times in in our circles. You know, we we just talk about things. We're talking about, oh, this is what I did, and this is what I did. And so many times the stories, uh, you know, somebody shares something and you say, oh, like sports, sports are great, you know, and, and you say, somebody's sharing a sports story about their past, and they say, oh yeah, one time, you know, we, we did this, and then you're thinking, oh, that brings up in my mind the time when I led our team single-handedly to the state championship. Everyone else was terrible, but I was amazing, and, you know, I did this, and, you know, surprisingly, I scored a thousand points, even though nobody has ever done that before in the history of the world, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, we, we're so good at just uh, inflating our, our accomplishments and just portraying that. Let's put it this way. It's the default in the human condition when we, when we share something about ourselves to share the things that are going to help others view us better, right? Like if somebody asks, so how, how, how did you do at your job today? You're not going to share all the, you know, most of the time. You're not going to share the embarrassing parts where you're just like, yeah, I, uh, I tripped and fell in the bathroom again. You know, it was a big mess. You know, it was like, whatever. It's like, you don't share those things. You're just like, oh, yeah, I closed the, closed the sale. Yeah. I nailed that. You know, the boss said he's really proud of me. You don't talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, you got, you know, coffee all over your clothes or stuff like that. Maybe you do. I don't know. It depends. But the point is, usually when we're sharing things with one another, we, we want people to view us as, as better, as, as more important, as more effective and so we share things. I just remember in baseball, whenever people would, would ask my batting average, I would round up every time. I never rounded down. I don't know why I never rounded down. It, there are mathematical rules for when to round up and when to round down, but the rules for pride are that you always round up. And so people would ask like, oh yeah, what do you bat? I'd be like, okay, curious. So, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I bat that. They're like, oh, that's really good. I'd be like, yeah, even though I don't bat that, I actually bat less, but I was rounding up. Why would I round up? You know, it's, you, you think there, there's, there's, a, there's a drive within all of us, and we have to fight against that. And so the humble Christian empties himself of all proud thoughts. And the reason is, you say, why is that? I think the, one of the key takeaways, if, if you are truly a humble person, is that you actually understand who you really are. In a similar sense, I think, you know, when people praise you or they tell you about how awesome you are, the, you know, the, the best way to combat against being proud and arrogant as a result of that is to just have a realistic view of who you are and to just understand that everything I am, I am by the grace of God. And this person is appreciating something about me. They're, they're, they're telling me something that's very kind and, and it's uplifting but I know who I really am. I know that there are sins in my heart that, that make me, you know, the worst of Christians, as Paul would say, right? And so a humble Christian empties 
himself of all proud thoughts. He doesn't, and by the way, this is different than kind of the self-pity. You know, a lot of people parade around a, a false humility, which is really kind of, it's actually a form of pride, realistically, because they parade themselves as like, oh, woe is me, I'm, I'm not good at anything, blah, 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 and they do that. And part of the reason they do that oftentimes is because they're searching for compliments for people to build them up. We've seen things like that. And so this is a, a true reality where it's not a despondent, oh, woe is me, I'm not good at anything. It's, it's like, no, I am, I am worthless, but thanks be to God that he has saved me and he's given me a purpose in life. And anything good that comes from me, it's from the Lord. So the humble Christian is empty of all proud thoughts. Number two, a humble Christian thinks better of others than of himself. A humble Christian thinks better of others than of himself. And this flows just so well from the prior one, right? Because it's easy to think better of others than of, of yourself if you understand who you are. And it's, it's easier to be patient with other people because you understand the temptations to sin. You understand just the depravity that can come from your hearts. You know, I think about, we, we mentioned Philippians 2, we didn't go there, but um, in Philippians 2, right before uh, Paul draws on the example of Christ, he says to the Philippian believers, consider one another as more important than yourselves. This is, this is a call to all Christians, is that we are, we are called to elevate others more important than ourselves. See, the, the humble Christian assumes that, that he doesn't have it all down, that he, he understands his own, his own sin, he studies his own infirmities, and he elevates others' excellencies. You know, and I think that that's that really is evidence of the proud and arrogant, again, when you're always looking for the faults in other people's lives to just disqualify them. And I'm as guilty as anybody. Uh, you know, sometimes people will, you know, praise somebody and say, oh, did you see, you know, so-and-so and, and the great thing that they did? And, and, and then, you know, come in there and say, ah, but did you know this about so-and-so? You know, he's not as great as you think he is because of this sin. Or this aspect. And why? Why would we do that? There's no good reason other than our own pride and arrogance and that we are, we are offended that somebody else would be receiving honor for a job well done. You know, I, I remember thinking back to the, the Apostle Paul. One, one of the things that I, that I observed and I think this is a really, really neat observation, is that as you look through the Apostle Paul's writings, if you, if you look at them chronologically, there's an interesting sequence that's involved there. You may, you may find this interesting. I, I just think it's super fascinating. Is that if you look at Ephesians 3, Paul says that he's the least of the saints. That's in Ephesians 3.8. He says, I am the least of all the saints. Ephesians is probably written around 60 to 62 A.D., and then you fast forward a little bit to 1 Timothy 1. And in 1 Timothy, that's probably written closer to you know, 66, 67, maybe 65, but it, it's a few years later. And what Paul says there in 1 Timothy 1 is that I am the chief of sinners. And you're just thinking to yourself, wait a second, Paul. If, if you are being sanctified in accordance with your Christian life, Ephesians 3, you might say, I'm the, I'm the, 
you know, chief of sinners among Christians, okay. Or, or like, I, I am among the believers, I am, I am just the epitome of what it means to be a sinner. Okay, by the time you, a couple years down the road, you should have sanctified a little bit. Maybe you're not, you're no longer the worst sinner among Christians. Maybe, maybe you've, you could say, okay, I'm in, in half, I'm halfway, 50%, I'm good. But Paul goes the opposite, and then he goes to the full extreme saying, I'm the chief of all sinners. And I think there's a, there's a pattern there where, where godly people, as they mature and as they grow in true humility, they don't feel better about their life. They feel worse. I remember hearing a, a well-known pastor say that one time, and I didn't really understand until, until later, and I, I started to kind of see the implications of what he was saying. But he said, you know, as sanctification progresses in the Christian life, you know, you do happen to sin less over time, but you understand the gravity more and you feel worse about your sin just because you recognize the severity of it, the significance of it. And so there is an aspect where as we are looking at others, it's, it's bathed in, our under, in the understanding of our own frailty. And so it's very easy to be patient with people and that, that's part of the reason why all of the people who use social media and jump online and, and argue against one another, that's one of the problems is, is there's a dehumanization that takes place on social media. And we need to remember that our brothers and sisters especially, whether, whether we agree with them or not, like I have many brothers and sisters that I disagree with on key key scriptural doctrines, okay? But they're still believers. And I understand what it's like to be a sinner. I live with myself every day. And so can I not be patient with them? Can I not elevate them? That's what a humble Christian would ought to do. Number three, a humble Christian sees his good works as inferior. A humble Christian sees his good works as inferior. So the proud Christian obviously says, look at everything that I've done. Wow, I'm amazing. No, nobody else has, has accomplished this. Can I just say how proud I am of, of everything that I'm accomplishing? But the humble Christian says, alas, I have only done this much. Woe is me! You know, it's uh, like in the pure. I think it was in Thomas Watson's book. I remember as I was reading, he said, he said, the humble Christian says, alas, for how little I have done, God may condemn me for that. You know, as we're always defaulting to, God, God's so happy I'm on his team. You know, man, I'm really making him proud. You know, just, but the reality is that we really don't do very much at all. Uh, as much as we ought to do. A humble man recognizes that even his best, that even the best that he has to offer is tainted beyond repair, really. And, and I think we, we sense that because think about all the, the best things that you've ever done. Think about, you know, the gospel that you've shared with individuals. Think about uh, the service that you've offered to the churches. Can you really say that you did all of that out of pure motivation? Maybe, I know, I, I can't, I can't say that as I look back on that. And just, I, I understand that 
there's a complex web of motivations for why I do things. And I know it's not always pure. Number four, a humble Christian complains of his wickedness, not his circumstance. A humble Christian complains of his wickedness, not his circumstance. See, the the proud hypocrite is always complaining about, and I think maybe you've heard this before, this is so crucial to just really process, but every time you complain, you're essentially affronting God's sovereignty and telling him you know what's better than him. And let me just go ahead and tell you that I lead the pack on that one, okay? There are lots of times I am guilty of complaining. But the humble Christian doesn't complain about what God deems best for him. The humble Christian actually complains at how bad he is. You know, we, you know it, it's been often stated that we deserve hell. So everything else should be a step up from that. And it's, it's, a, it's a truism, absolutely. But that should, play, that should play a very real role in our processing our circumstances. See, the humble Christian doesn't, doesn't complain about the trials that he goes through. The humble Christian rejoices that God uses him despite his wickedness. Number five... A humble Christian will justify God's actions during his own suffering. So a humble Christian will justify God's actions during his own suffering. And this is, this is so crucial because it's so easy to blame God, to say, God, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're in control. Why would you let me go through this? But... When trials come, the humble man knows God is right in what he does. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like, I I trust him. I know he's good. And I know my own heart that I am not good. And so we trust God. We justify God knowing that he is the trustworthy one and we are not. See, we... And I know many of you have probably suffered way more than I have, but whenever I go through difficulty, it's so, so easy to, to rationalize. And I have these arguments with God saying, don't you understand this situation? Kind of laughably, right? Because the implication, you know, I, I just need to go back and read the end of Job more because at the end of Job, God says, okay, dress yourself, or God says to Job, dress yourself for action, like a man, I'm going to ask you some questions, you respond. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I did all these things? And you start to realize, it's like, it's like okay, God, I get the point. I get the point. You know, you, are, you have all power. You have all knowledge. I am a nobody. I, I mean, yeah, maybe some of you, uh, you know, we live in one country. We speak one language. And there's an entire world out there of complex events. And God, you're in control of all of that. And here I am thinking, I know what's better for my life. It's laughable. So a humble Christian will justify God's actions during his own suffering. Number six, a humble Christian seeks to magnify Christ and not self. And a a humble Christian seeks to magnify Christ and not self. 
you can tell a humble man by the way that he by the way that he enjoys praise or I should say the opposite I suppose you can you can reverse uh, a humble man uh, is is easily discernible by the fact that he's uncomfortable with receiving praise now that doesn't mean it has to be awkward okay like when I when I go through discipleship with young guys I, I um, <laughs> Sometimes I have to tell them because they get like gung-ho about this. And they say, all right, great. So if somebody ever compliments me, I need to get in their face and say, don't you dare do that again. And it's just like, all right, whoa there, cowboy. Yeah, this is, this is not the right response. You know, you don't need to say, you don't need to, you know, go, go around and making sure. In fact, I remember actually talking to a pastor and he was lamenting about his younger, um, younger years. And he was, he was uh, telling he had a lady who was, who was kind of upset with him uh, because he refused to tell her good job on something. And, and she's like, why didn't you say, like, good job? Everybody else said good job. And he's like, well, we just need to be okay with Christ getting all the glory, and I didn't want to give you any. So, you know, he's just like, not tell you. And he's like, yeah, that was not the, not the right way to do that. Um, so, yeah, you, it's not saying, and by the way, Scripture is actually replete with, with uh, the, the need to appreciate one another and to honor one another. So we do do that, but we do it in, in a purview of understanding we are honoring Christ through that. Like, uh, and, and so you can, you can often tell somebody who, you know, they did a great job on music or they did a great, great job teaching. And, and you, you go up to them and you say, hey, Great job. We're so thankful uh, that you did that. Just really appreciated what you do. Yeah, I did a lot of work preparing for that. It was, uh, it was a good job by me. I will say that myself. It's like, okay, that, no, that's one way to do it. All right, at that point, you just excommunicate them and then have nothing else to do with that. But, the, you know, the other people, they say, you know what? Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you so much. I'm so glad. In fact, one of my mentors, Dr. Grisanti at uh, Masters, what he would always say in response to that was, Oh, I'm just so thankful that the Lord can use broken uh, clay vessels. You know, just, just that was his statement. You know, just like, praise the Lord that he can use broken uh, clay vessels. You know, and, and you know, I re- really appreciated that. Just always drawing attention to the fact that it's undeserved. So the humble Christian is, is trying to, under, and understandably focused on saying, I want Christ to be magnified rather than myself. I want him to get all the glory and honor, and that's, that's crucial. That's crucial. And on that note, this would be uh, number seven. The humble Christian is content to be anonymous. And really, you could, so the humble Christian is content to be anonymous, but really you could even say he prefers to be anonymous. And how many of us can truly say that about ourselves? Is that if we pour in the work you know, there, there's a lot of work that goes into making a conference like this happen. And, and you just imagine all the people who've, who've poured in the work for this. And, you know, it's, it's good that we can recognize that and say, oh, thank you so much. And that, that, is our, that is our job and our responsibility to acknowledge those things. But the kind of work that goes into that, you know, and the people who've done that, they say, it's not because I want to hear good job. I want the Lord's work to go forward, right? And that's, that's why, uh, knowing, knowing the people who have prepared this conference, I know that that is on their hearts. And this is, this is the cry of all Christians. I mean, why is it, why is it that we, 
why is it that we want to do a good deed? Why is it that we want to give money to church? Why is it that we want to help out those who are struggling? Do we want to have them say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or do we want to hear Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant? And so the humble Christian is content and even prefers to be anonymous. The motto of the humble Christian is John 3.30, where John himself says, let me decrease, let Christ increase. Are you willing, this, this puts the rubber on the road right here, are you willing to give 100% of the effort and get 0% of the credit? Can you imagine if you were a part of a church where that was the case? Can you imagine if you were part of a marriage where that was the case? Or a family? It would be remarkable. Number eight, a humble Christian is willing to take rebuke for sin. A humble Christian is willing to take rebuke for sin. This is going to come back up multiple times as we talk today. But rebuke for sin is so important for the Christian life. And that doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be where you have you know, a boxing ring set up, mano y mano, and you have to go through a whole three-hour process of 12 rounds and whatever. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be something as simple as a text message or just a, an off-the-hand conversation saying, hey, I, I've noticed that you haven't been at Bible study, or I, I've noticed that you, know, you, were, you were saying some words that I don't think were very kind the other day. It can just be a conversation like that. And how do you respond when, when somebody says something like that? Do you respond saying, well, you don't know what kind of life I'm living. You know, I live in a hard environment and, you know, I have to say those kinds of things. Or do you justify it and say, you know, this is, this is, well, I'm not perfect, certainly, but have you looked at your life recently? I mean, one of our favorite counter, counter verses is, um, first take the log out of your eye, hypocrite, then you can talk to me about my sin. I'll take verses out of context for 200 on that one. It's, <laughs> that's not how we're supposed to interact, right? In fact, I would, I would just, I would suggest, I would suggest this as, as, a, as a proper way of dealing with rebuke in your own life. Anytime and whoever takes a, takes a chance to talk to you about sin, whether it's real or imagined, okay? Anytime somebody talks to you about something, never defend yourself, but if you're not convinced that it's true out of the gate, just promise the individual that you are going to pray and think about that and ask them to do the same for you. Just, and by the way, if you've confronted somebody with, on sin before, you know it's not easy. So why would you make it so difficult for people to do that in your life? That is such, in, in Proverbs, that is one of the, if not the primary means God uses to teach us. And you would just, Cut yourself off from all of that. You should make it, you should make yourself the easiest person in the world to approach. So that, you know, I remember uh, one, one pastor in particular, uh, he, he said he had a friend where whenever you confronted him over an issue, uh, you ended up feeling more convicted at the end of it just because of how humble he was and how he responded, just being, just being like, oh, I want to be more like that guy, you know, he he, he really sets the standard. And that's what we should endeavor to be like, is when somebody takes that step and says, you know what, 
I've noticed this in your life. Say, thank you so much for telling me that. Maybe not everything that they said is right. Maybe 10% of what they said is right. But is that 10% of godliness and growth worth it? Come on, of course it is. And so you thank them for that. So the humble Christian is willing to take rebuke for sin. Number nine, a humble Christian is content to be in the circumstance God deems best for him. A humble Christian is content to be in the circumstance God deems best for him. See, we talked about this a little bit before, but rather than complaining to God, the humble Christian is not just, there's not just an absence of complaint, but there's, there's a, a acceptance and a contentedness in the Christian life where we recognize this is, if this is what God has for me, I shall be content. You know, it, it is interesting because you think about people in life who have, who have lived in very low conditions. And, you know, it's actually not... The reason that becomes difficult is when we expect or think we deserve better, right? If, if we think that we deserve a multi-million dollar mansion in the middle of, you know, I don't know what the best cornfield around. I don't know. <laughs> I was like, how do I explain that here? I, like, I don't know. It's like, even if, if we own all the corn in Nebraska, you know, it's just like, you know, if, if you think about, if you think you deserve that, you're not going to be content with what you do have. But if you think, yeah, I do deserve hell, then what God has given you is an incredible blessing. I, just as an example here, and I, I don't mean to, I'll, I'll really be throwing myself under the bus here, but I just remember in seminary, I was, you know, poor of the poor. And, like, uh, I probably lost, like, 20 pounds my first semester of seminary just because I didn't eat very much, you know. I, uh, but it's okay. Like, that was really good for me. And I remember I got a job at the Master's University where I got to be, do security. And part of my job for, or part of my benefits of working security is I got to eat in the cafeteria three times a week. So if I spaced that out right, I could live. So uh, I wasn't married at that time, so I was in trouble. So I, I just remember, I, I'm not even kidding you, I like sat down for the first meal in the cafeteria after like that season of deprivation. And I remember thinking to myself, I am never going to take food for granted again. I just remember thinking to myself like, Lord, I, you know how sometimes it's just routine, you just bow before the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. And whatever you go on. But I just remember being, Lord, I really am thankful for this food. Really. Like, really, really. Like, this is, I do not take this for granted. Like, this is such a blessing. Like, and then it's funny because then you start, your ears start to prick up and you hear, oh, this food is so disgusting. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, I can't believe they serve this here. And I'm just like, you guys don't know what you have. You have food. Like, unlimited. It's free. You know, it's just like, okay, come on. Yeah, and I just think as, as Christians, when we truly understand what we deserve and what we've been given, we're very, it's, it's easy to be content. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 4, right? He says, I've learned the secret to contentment. I've learned to be content with little, and I've learned to be content with a lot. And what is the secret? It's actually understanding your position in Christ. 
That's what Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the whole context there. All right, we have to wrap this up. Two more. Uh, Number 10, a humble Christian will never be superior to a person or a position. A humble Christian will never be superior to a person or a position. Uh, To put it just in very tangible uh, reality, there's, there's nobody too low. There, there's, no, there's nobody that's not worth your time to talk to. Uh, the humble Christian will associate with everybody. Uh, he, he doesn't just go with the high class or whatever. He associates with everybody. And, and he's, he's not too important to stack chairs. Or he's not too important to scrub toilets. In fact, I've often thought that one of the best uh, trainings for being an elder, you, can, you guys can mark this down, is to do bathroom duty for you know, a, a year or so first. Just make sure, are you willing to, are you willing to do the, the menial tasks? The, the humble Christian should delight to serve. Lastly, number 11, the humble Christian entrusts himself as a slave to his master. The humble Christian entrusts himself as a slave to his master. And what I mean by this is really just understanding our, our position is that we serve, we serve our master, Christ. And in doing so, we will do whatever he tells us to do. We die to self. Maybe you have dreams and aspirations. Those can be good. The Lord can work through those. But everybody here, as part of walking in faith, in humility before the Lord, must sacrifice every dream, every desire, every ambition, and say, all of those are laid at the feet of Christ. He is our master. And to kind of conclude our time, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is in Luke 17, 7 through 10, specifically verse 10. Jesus paints this picture of what it looks like to serve him. And he says this, In Luke 17, verse 7, he says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward then you will eat and drink? In other words, this is what it means to be a slave, is that you don't get the high treatment when you come in from the field. You still have to serve. And then in verse 9, he says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In other words, this is the obligation. In the slave-master relationship, you don't just, you don't do it for a good job or a pat on the back. It's just what you're, it's your duty. It's what you're obligated to do. And this is so profound in verse 10. He says, so you also, when you, he's speaking to the disciples, when you have done all that you were commanded, This is what you say. This is the command. You say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is profound to end on. And we do long to be the people who, when we understand our our position before you, that, that we must decrease, you must increase, that we have a, a true humility, that we can no matter what things we accomplish, whether they be great or small, we say it doesn't matter. All we've done was our duty. 
Maybe, may that be the case in all of our lives, in all of our families, for your honor and glory. Amen.